Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by the WT Distinguished Lecture Series and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. On April 13th, those two institutions are hosting Aaron Mankey, creator and host of the hit storytelling podcast, Lore. Now, I love spooky stories and weird history, and Lore is the absolute apex of that kind of podcast. It's one of my favorites. Every episode is good. Mankey will be speaking at WT at 6 p.m. on April 13th on the importance of folk tales and legends in culture and society. And I'm going to be there. Tickets are $15 for the general public. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. That's Aaron Mankey of Lore at WT's Legacy Hall on April 13th. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to A&B Home Loans online at anb.com. They provided the mortgage for my house. And to the locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Decor, located at 3636 Sansi. Today's guest is Stephanie Brady, the founder of Wild West Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. Stephanie arrived in Amarillo in 2015 after a career as a vet tech in another part of Texas, and she quickly found out that she was the only permitted wild animal rehabber in the Texas panhandle. Now, Animal Control and Texas Parks and Wildlife were thrilled she was here. They started bringing her injured or abandoned animals that they found. Stephanie quickly figured out that she needed to formalize things, and so she launched Wild West. In 2022, the organization cared for more than 3,000 animals, from burrowing owls to skunks and squirrels. She's one of those guests that I've known for a while, I've wanted to have on the show for several years, and I'm glad we worked it out. So here's Stephanie Brady. Stephanie Brady, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to have you. I know we've talked several times in the past for you know print journalism, but I've, I've not uh, had you in studio to do this. So I'm, I'm grateful to have you. And I want to start with you the same way uh, that I start with all my guests. And that's just to ask why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area? Well, I kind of came kicking and screaming, to be honest with you. I was married for 17 years. I was a military wife and we were down in the Fort Hood area. And when he went to retire, he took a job with Medtrans flying for the um, hospitals. Okay. And uh, so he took that job up here. He was working at it for about a year, uh, going back and forth every other week back home because we have four kids. And um, he ended up taking the job because he, he loved the community up here. And I was not super excited about it because down in Central Texas, we have tons of trees and lakes and... I was, you know, I had been there for so long. I had such a community around me and family, mm-hmm. and it was two hours from my parents. Mm-hmm. But, you you know, you have to be supportive and move. And and uh, so we came up here, and it was definitely a culture shock. Yeah. I think one of the funniest things I remember when I first came up here was, I think we stopped at a gas station in Childress, and there was a concealed handgun purse aisle in the gas station. And I was like, <laughs> we're not in Central Texas anymore. Well, <laughs> But you were still in Texas. I mean, yes. surely somebody in Texas wasn't too surprised <laughs> yes. at that. But. Well, I mean, and we we do have guns and yeah, stuff. But I'd, still, I was just like, I've never seen I that understand. before. I understand. It's right out in front. <laughs> it was. Where did you grow up? So I was born and raised for part of my childhood in Iowa. Okay. In the DFW for the rest. Okay. Iowa, um, still kind of the middle part of the country like Texas is, but Midwest. pretty different. Yeah. 
from Texas. It is, but the Amarillo people remind me of the people in the Midwest. Really? Very kind. Mm-hmm. Kindness, friendliness, yes. openness. Yep. Hmm. There to help each other. So we moved up here, and I uh, let Texas Parks and Wildlife know, hey, um, I've been rehabbing since I was 15 and working with wildlife and in the veterinary field, and if you need a rehabber, let me know. And they said, great, because we don't have one up here. And I thought, well, you know, it's flat. There's not a lot of trees. There's not a lot of lakes. So there's probably not much wildlife, you yeah. know. And I ended up with uh, like 200 animals in five months, like 750 the next year, and over 1,200 the following year. And I was doing this for my home. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, God, I'm going to need a center because there's no way I can keep up with this. I'm going to end up on horrors. You know, it's because they got to get the level of care they need. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I can only be split so thin because, you know, I was loading out my children, four kids, and they were toddlers and an infant. Um, and I had one that was eight at the time. And the rest of us, you know, were driving around to go on these rescues all over. So it was a family affair. And it's one sure. thing to hoard, you know, uh, books or receipts or yes. magazines, but like, raccoons and, and skunks skunks and stuff that, that's yeah. another level screaming owls <laughs> how did yeah. you get into rehabbing in the first place i know you have a, a background in veterinary science i guess i mean you were a technician right yes i was so um when i was 13 i've, I've always been that weird kid that was picking up stuff and bringing them home my mom has stories of that and there wasn't really anybody else in our family like that so it's just kind of weird in that sense i thought i was mm-hmm. And so there was a large 24-hour veterinary clinic in Arlington that was looking for volunteers. And my mom was like, I think you'd be great for this. And I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. Hmm. So at 13, I started volunteering. And it was mainly cleaning poop. But I was like, I did it with a smile. I was so excited to be there and to be around the animals. I got hired at 14. By 15, I was starting to learn technician, um, veterinary technician. Because, you know, back then, you didn't have to be licensed through the state so as we're as I'm doing that, I met one of the eleven veterinarians that started working with wildlife. So at 15, I was getting to help with baby bobcats hmm. and opossums, and that's what started my love affair for wildlife. Not that I didn't like it as a toddler when I was out in the creeks and all that sure. stuff, but like I was hooked, and uh, just worked my way up to uh, emergency medicine technician, and then transferred to another hospital seven years later and did internal medicine. And just did wildlife all during that. But there was such a huge wildlife coalition up there that, you know, you could do like 50 a year from your home or something. It was very viable. And uh, I, but I never expected it to turn on what it does here. Tell me about the the permitting that's necessary to be a, a wildlife rehabber. Because I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, you... You take care of little animals. You can just do that in in your house or something. But like, it, you've got to be licensed, right? Yes. So I have a state, federal, and USDA permit. Okay. And that's, is that rare to like have all those different levels? Or there's do most not people... a lot of people that have them. Most of them just have the rehabber permit. Okay. It's. I mean, there's so much paperwork and there's so many guidelines you have to follow. And I can see why it's very intimidating for a lot of people not to want to get those extra permits, but. To do mammals in the state of Texas, you have to have a, um, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Rehabilitation Permit. And there is a lot that goes into it. It takes about three to six months to get it after mm-hmm. you've sent in pictures of your enclosures, your history and your background in this and um, schooling that you've done because there's classes and things now that are available to help with that. And 
Uh, then once you get that, there's guidelines now where I mean, every single animal that comes in, we have to have GPS coordinates where it was found, the age, the sex of it, um, and then what happened in the end. You know, um, did it? Do we have to euthanize because it was a severe injury? Did it get released? And if so, we need those GPS coordinates. Okay. So it's a lot of work, and we do over three thousand animals now. Yeah. So it is during baby season. It is insane. So that's just on the rehab part. Now, when you start working with raptors like your owls and your eagles, and we do get golden eagles in this area, and we got a bald eagle last year, you have to have a U.S. Fish and Wildlife permit. Okay. So you have to apply for that separately. And then they have their annual report you have to send in. Now, when you do education, you have to now have a USDA permit because hmm. the USDA permit is to – that inspector comes out and makes sure the animals are being taken care of during the education programs. Um, they're getting the veterinary care they need regularly and things like that. And so when you showed up here – and you said there were not any other permitted rehabbers. That was just the state level, right? The Parks and Wildlife? Right. There was a sub-permittee. Okay, so there's South Plains Wildlife Rehabilitation mm-hmm. Center in Lubbock. Gail Barnes had a sub-permittee under her permit um, that was up here. And she would help with some of the birds and occasionally transport. But that was it. So your baby foxes um, or even adult foxes and skunks opossums, which are harmless, they were all being euthanized Hmm. because the city didn't have a choice. I mean, if they don't have anybody to give it to, they can't just keep them. You know, they, they don't have a permit for rehabbing either. So they, all those things got euthanized. I, I'm curious, like why there were so few up here. If, you know, it was, it didn't seem like it was a big deal. If if you were taking care of maybe 50 animals a year, certainly there were other permitters in East Texas. Uh, and then this huge area here, and there's virtually nothing. So why is that? Do you know? I think um, because you don't get paid. Hmm. It's just a volunteer thing. It is a volunteer thing. Now I'm just now getting to where I have, and I can actually make an income doing this. Mm-hmm. It's a very humble um, income, but because it's a nonprofit. Because it's a nonprofit, yes. And you always want to make sure that the funds are there for the animals. Right. That's the most important thing. But before that, in all those years, thirty years of doing it, well. But, 20, I'd say seven years of doing it, it was all out of pocket. It gets very expensive. Special formulas, the veterinary care, not all veterinarians want to work with wildlife and aren't willing to help with discount if they know you're doing it for free out of your own pocket. So I think that is a big reason. And um, you get compassion fatigue. I mean, you're dealing with animals that you don't always have a history on. I mean, unless somebody says, I was driving on the road and I accidentally hit this bird and it flew right in front of my car, you you don't know. So there's right. so much that goes into it. And unless you've done a long time where you can pick up certain signs and symptoms, a lot of things will end up passing on you. And that takes a toll on your spirit. It yeah. really does. So, and you have to know that that is going to happen and that's part of it. And for some people, it's just like, it's too much. Yeah. And know? it's not like you're building a relationship that's a lasting relationship, like with a dog right. or cat that ends up living with you. I mean, ultimately, if these animals get better, you're going to say goodbye to them. Yes. Because they were never ours to begin with. Yeah. So they're God's creatures, and we are here to take care of them. You know, we have domain over them, and we are to, here to help them while we're coexisting with them. So our goal is just to help them. We don't discriminate whether it's a sparrow or an eagle. You're going to get the same amount of care. Mm-hmm. And then once you're better, we're going to release you back out. And then there's certain parameters we have to work in with that. So, you know, uh, like a red-tailed hawk, if it's an adult, they mate for life. So we're always going to release back in the same area. Okay. Because you never know if the mate's like, where have you been? <laughs> I've been raising these two babies by myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we always try to keep those things in mind when we're releasing. 
and that we release them in an area where they're going to flourish, or they can even have a slow release, which means the person either that owns that land or ourselves to take out food there to supplementally feed them until they're they're good to go. I, I want to talk a little bit about the process of what you do, um, just so people understand it. You know, probably if, if they follow you on social media, they see you know, some of the photos, sometimes there's a, a hurt animal and you show like how you're treating it. Sometimes it's, you know, a celebratory kind of thing where you're releasing an animal. Right. But like, let's say somebody does find an injured animal. Walk me through the whole process, like, like of what you do. Okay. Um, what's a situation where they might get in touch with you and then what happens? On my way here to do the podcast, I got a call um, from a young lady out of Hereford and they found two young birds this time of year. It's probably a couple of young pigeons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's too early for it to be a raptor of any kind. Well, except for maybe an owl. So it could be an owl. But anyway, so they'll reach out to us. Um, and she said that she found these uh, two young birds. And um, she wanted to get them to us at the Wildlife Center. She already had them wrapped up and put in a box. And that's probably the biggest thing we tell people especially dealing with birds or any animal, really just put them in a box, make sure there's holes in there first before we put them in there. Mm -hmm. And it's nice, dark and quiet, Uh, keep them warm and then bring them on in. Um, We understand if it's something scary, you don't want to go catching a badger or an eagle with those big talons to give us a call. We will send out a rescue team. But in this situation, and most often they call us, they tell us they found something, they'll put it in a box and then they'll drive it up to us. And then they'll, leave those, you know, those hurt creatures with you. And yes. then it could be a few days. It could be weeks. It could be six months. Yeah, that you're treating them. Yes. With your birds, it's going to be a lot shorter period of time. But your mammals, when we start getting in, like we have baby squirrels in already, fox squirrels, mm-hmm. um, we'll have them for four months before they're released. Because okay. from them being eyes closed to that point of release is about four months. Uh, your raccoons, your badgers, skunks, you're looking at about six months. That they're in care, that we're feeding them and getting them transitioned to a more wild diet mm-hmm. uh, and then get them acclimated to outdoor enclosures and the temperatures prior to release. Okay. And all that takes place at your facility yes. or does some of it still go to like the garages of a well, permitted rehabbers who are you know under your management? Well, that's a good question because when they're very, very small and they have to be fed every two hours and once during the night... I have seven sub-permittees under my permit. Mm-hmm. So they will, you know, we have a crew that says, I love to do squirrels or I'll do opossums. Because you have to be trained on how to feed opossums because they get tubed. Um, they don't eat right. like a puppy or a right. kitten. Um, and so we have team members that specialize in those things. They will take them home. And then once the animal is now on solids and eating on their own, they come back to the center. Okay. But yeah, the every two-hour feedings, because we close during the busy season at 8 p.m. and they would still need several more feedings. Right. So yeah, we have a crew that does that and we all have dark circles and big coffees. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, you have veterinary experience, but you're not a veterinarian. Correct. Uh, and some of these animals need like more, um, I guess, more qualified care. Yes. Surgeries and things like that. So how does that work? So we have partnered with Dr. Wolf for several years now. Dr. Wolf has been practicing for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. And what I love about her You know, having worked with veterinarians over the years, you can tell that she truly is in it because she has, you know, passion for her animals. Mm -hmm. And even after all these years of practicing, when we come up against something that we've not seen before or encountered, she's looking it up. She's reaching out to other vets. She gets so excited about it. 
and she's just amazing. And so she has been alongside this whole process and is even on our board um, since the beginning. Okay. How often does she have to get involved? Like, is it a, a weekly basis you have a, an animal that needs that kind of care? Or Right now we're in the slow season. So I would say every couple weeks. Okay. But during baby season, it's sometimes almost every day. Hmm. So our goal at some point after this education center is built, I'll work on grant writing for I'd like to have a state-of-the-art rehab facility with a small vet clinic because we're also okay. partnered with Texas Tech. And will be an outsource education facility for the third and fourth year students to come through. Okay. And so I would love that to have that teaching setting there for them, as well as having a veterinarian either part-time or full-time if we can raise those funds that is there to come to the center and do all of that instead of us driving them yeah. to the vet clinic all the time. And I was going to ask, what does it mean for you that the the Texas Tech vet school is here now? You know, just in terms of maybe what you can provide those students, but also what those students might be able to help you with, you know, getting some sort of hours and some exposure to different kinds of animals. Oh, it is amazing because they are just as excited as we get about some of maybe the gross stuff that mm -hmm. we have to see, you know, so when you call a parasitologist over there and you say, oh my gosh, we have these trematodes and we don't know what these are or what kind Wait, they, what's a trematode? they came from. They are like little parasites that uh -huh. were in the inside of a owl that we recently found wow. in the mouth. But you, they're a rodent type of trematode, so of a parasite. Okay. They usually start in something like a snail. It's kind of like something out of a alien movie. And so they will go into a snail, and like sometimes they were explaining this to me, go up to the top of the head and like poke out of the snail's head to attract a bird so that the bird will then Ooh, eat it. I've heard of those. Yes, That's so crazy. then it can reproduce inside the bird. Yeah. In this situation, it's a rodent one, so it would do that to attract a rodent. But usually when the owl consumes the rodent, the trematodes die. But in this situation, it didn't because it was a perfect storm. This owl was already grounded. It had head trauma. It was emaciated, so it didn't have the immune system to really fight it. So those little suckers just came up the throat there and were hanging out inside the mouth. Wow. It was I've never seen that in 30 years. So, of course... I immediately am plucking them off. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, preserving them in some saline solution. And I reach out to Texas Tech and their parasitologists and their team were super excited to see them and figure out what they are. And they're actually going to uh, be writing up a, uh, a document on this. Okay. It's going to be a case study that's going to be published. So that's exciting for them and it's exciting for us. And so I'm looking forward to, you know, the future and what that's going to look mm -hmm. like because, I also feel like when they come through and they start doing rotations through the center, if you can hold, you know, a badger or a raccoon or something like that, you're going to be able to handle anything. Right. I mean, feral cats will give you a run for the money, but I mean, pretty much anything. So it's it's going to be a neat experience for them, I think, as well. I want to ask you to give a couple of, you mentioned case studies, like like what are a couple of success stories maybe that that you could tell that kind of shows the value and the breadth of, of what you guys do. Animals that came to you were injured and that you were able to nurse back to health. Oh, my goodness. I mean, are there any that, like, I don't know, the stories you're always telling to people? Well, one the ones that have gone viral, I guess, that kind of stand out, and then I can tell you the ones that don't um, always but are very rewarding. So one of them would be um, it was several years ago when I was – I had moved from doing this in my laundry room and garage – to a small storage building in my backyard. 
And animal control used to show up at my house like three to five times a day. I'm pretty sure people thought I was either fighting roosters yeah. or I had a hoarding situation. But they were actually bringing me Yeah, wildlife. they were bringing them to you from the, yes. the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it, it was great because I got to meet them all in person, and we have a great working relationship. So at late at night, animal control officer uh, Pierce had brought me in an opossum that was found with a pack of six rings you know the you know how they used to do the six pack of soda right. or beer cans with the the plastic well it was stuck around the opossum's neck okay. and it was an adult opossum but it had been there so long it had embedded pretty much under most of the skin just like if you were to take a dog and leave a collar on and never take it off as right, it grew right. same kind of deal so she brought it in and we took some photos of this cuz it was a great reminder that you know if you're going to put these in the trash please cut them up because some they're scavengers just like a lot of wildlife is and uh, so we went ahead and uh, we cleaned it really, really good. We were able to cut the, the plastic off. There didn't have to be any kind of surgery performed, um, but there was a lot of uh, cleaning of the dead tissue yeah. and disinfecting and things like that. And he made a full recovery. Um, it healed beautifully. We had to do hydrotherapy for several weeks, and then he was released. But it was a great reminder to the public, and it and it went viral that, hey, we got to cut these up or, mm-hmm. or find a better way to – Keep these cans together. And right. most we used to talk about that with like sea turtles yes. and things like that that yes. don't apply here. Yes. And but that's not just a beach issue. Right. You know, it's an issue here too. Yeah, it is. It's a trash a trash issue. And so it can affect the mammals as well. So that's one of them. Another one that I can think of, I mean, gosh, we have people in the community that our community is amazing. So there's so many people that go above and beyond to help. Um, but there was a gentleman that was working. I forgot what they're called, but they're kind of like a pond and it's near where there's going to be like oil drilling and such. Mm-hmm. And the embankment going down to the water level is very slippery. It's almost like a plastic or something there. And he had saw a great horned owl in, in the water that was trying to get out. But once her feathers get soaked like that, like oh, he, okay. he was trying to keep him from drowning. So he put a camera on his truck, which was neat because then we got to see the process but he took um, like a tie strap, tied it to the grill of his truck, down over the embankment, went down in the water, holding a great horned owl, which is the largest owl in Texas, mm-hmm. um, in one arm while he's trying to pull himself up in the owl up the slippery embankment and brought it in. Wow. And the owl ended up having head trauma. It's a very common thing with raptors. Uh, made a full recovery. And a few weeks later, we were able to meet up with him and let him release the owl wow. that he rescued. Okay. I want to ask you about the mindset here, because anytime I've talked to you, you know, you have story after story of people who care enough to like stop when they've seen uh, an animal in distress, pick up that animal, take it to you. But I I also think, you know, that this is a this is a culture that kind of, you know, settled here in the very harsh climate of the Texas Panhill. A lot of farmers and ranchers. And people who see nature and are just like, yeah, nature's bad. You got to just let it run its course, you know, survival of the fittest. And and they might see an animal die and they think, well, that's just kind of the circle of life. And so I've seen two different mindsets. And I wonder, like, if, if you've seen that same thing or if that's kind of sorting starting to change uh, now that we have this opportunity to help these animals. When I first moved up here, yes, definitely the mindset. But it has changed vastly just in the time that I've been here, which is eight years now. I mean, I think about when somebody posts on, uh, you know, a neighborhood page 
hey, we have an opossum in our yard and it used to be, I'd have to go in there and go, okay, this is the benefits of them. You, you really don't have to worry about rabies. It's super right. rare and all this, but now everybody else does it. And I'm like, my work here is done. Yeah, you know, okay. I'm so happy about that. So I do think the mindset is changing and I think you can't love what you don't know. Once you're educated on why that animal is here and what they do, the environment, then you can have a better understanding of what they're what they're here for. But you also have to keep in mind that a lot of the reasons why these animals are displaced, injured, or orphaned is because of us. Right. We come in and we're going to build another subdivision, and now we've got foxes running around because their dens were and the culverts or different things that were around that area, and then complain because we have a fox running through our neighborhood. You know, he's just trying to survive like we are. And I think what surprises me the most in our area is the wildlife is just as tough as we are. Because if you think about it with us, we live in a tough environment. We've got winter storms, fires, you know, we've got drought conditions, the wind, don't even get me started on the wind, Mm -hmm. you know, and not everybody can handle that. Not everybody can. So they're just as resilient, I think, as we do, as we are. We're all trying to just survive and make it through. And if you can help, why would you not help? And the animals you're seeing are not necessarily animals that, say, have been attacked by a predator and just right. left there. Correct. Usually the injuries are something related to the human environment That's that they've correct. come into contact yes. with. Yes. Every once in a while we'll see something where a predator went after something. But usually once a predator gets after something, they get it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not usually getting those cases. We're getting the person that decided they don't like this tree in their yard, or maybe mm-hmm. it's going bad and there's a nest of squirrels up there. And so now they have babies because they displaced the mom. So we try to educate on reuniting those or, you know, just different things like that. Or you feed feral cats and now you have opossums. We have a free food source. Hmm. Be glad it's an opossum and not a raccoon. Yeah. You don't want to fight a raccoon. So tell me about the process of, you know, showing up here and, you know, starting to do what you do because nobody else was doing it. And then, you know, eight years later, you've got this, this really big nonprofit that you're managing, you know, it, it having turned from this passion into like a career with a lot of people who are not only volunteering, but helping you giving money. Like, is that something you expected to ever end up doing? No, (laughs) I didn't. I didn't know. I all have always known that it is my calling to work with animals. And I've always loved wildlife. And I love all animals, but I've always had just had a deep passion for nature. Mm -hmm. But if you would have asked me 10 years ago, hey, I bet you're going to end up opening a wildlife center and doing this, I would have been like, what? No, I never would have saw that coming. How much of that is due to you having come to this area? I mean, obviously it's in this area because you came here, but like... Could that have happened if you lived somewhere else? Or is there something like unique about the people here, the animals here, the environment here that that made it possible? I had thought when I was in Central Texas and as I grew down there with the amount of wildlife and the connections I had with the game wardens and stuff, that maybe partnering up with the Humane Society or something like that, but never at a 3,000 animals a year level. Okay. Because down there in Central Texas, you've got rehabbers in Georgetown and Austin and I mean, Austin takes in like 12,000 and there's so many rehabbers in that area. So it was never um, such a high volume for one person up here, though. I think a lot of it has to do with the community and the volunteers. None of this would be possible without them. This is totally a team effort. I may have the vision or 
you know, just this is what needs to be done type mentality, but being able to put on social media, hey, we've got this land, they're going to let us rent this land, but it's full of mesquite. Is there anybody willing to come clear it with, you know, skid steers and stuff and Mm -hmm. having three skid steer people show up with their equipment and all these volunteers help us clean, I mean, clear an acre of mesquite in about four hours. Amazing. Hmm. Amazing. I don't, it's not the same mentality in central Texas. Um, it's it's just different. And the land itself was donated to you. Right? It, it, yes, it is now. So it is, yeah, yes, we had to pay for it um, for the first several years. We rented it, and um, now that it is a part of the Discovery Center, mm-hmm. uh, their board has graciously, and it was one of the biggest blessings we could have ever gotten. Said, "Hey, the land that you guys are on that's fenced in, we are going to donate that land yeah. to you guys." And I just cannot even tell you how much that meant to us. And that's about 11 acres. Tell me what the future of the organization looks like, sort of as as you plan it. You know, I know you've grown, like, tremendously since you started, 3,000 animals a year, and you've got a facility, and that facility you've kind of outgrown, and so now you're you're thinking of, of more growth. So tell me what that's going to look like. My goal is in about within the next five years to hopefully be in the process of building a larger facility that's you know, we're in a double wide that we renovated over yeah. three years and we did it debt free and thank goodness for that. But it's 1800 square feet is not holding us very well. I mean, it's, we're doing the best we can with what we got. And some of those Raptors are big birds. <laughs> they are. So, um, having a state of the art rehab facility with a small clinic in there would be fantastic. Within the last few weeks, we've had this groundbreaking for the education center That was a process of about three years raising the funds for that. And that's going to hold our educational ambassadors, also provide a classroom for schools to come to us, kids, Mm -hmm. the community. We we also train um, the animal control officers with wildlife conflict. And we do some training with the game wardens, and they train us too. So that'll be a facility for them as well. And uh, we're super excited about that. And, you know, just giving the animals that are not releasable, that are ambassadors, more space. Yeah. Tell listeners about some of those ambassador animals that you have that are sort of like your mascots at yes. this point. So we have Stinkers. He's our OG. Mm-hmm. and But he's eight and just put in his retirement paperwork. He said he's done doing programs. Okay. <laughs> he's he just tired, wants, of, tired of being petted. He wants to sleep all the time. Yes. <laughs> just wants to sleep. Um, and then Stinkers we, is a skunk. Yes. Stinkers is a striped skunk. Yes. And then we've got um, Pippi. She's an opossum. Um, she's going on two. And I'll be honest, opossums don't usually live past the age of two. Really? Three at the max. I know they've been around since the Ice Age, but they've just never evolved to live longer than that. So we usually will have one for a few years and then we'll have a, you know, we do over 500 opossums. We'll have another one that will end up taking the place of that one at some point. And these are just animals that because of something related to their injuries, you can't release them back into the wild because uh, it would put them in a a vulnerable position, right? Correct. Stinkers was brought in um, already descended. So he has no self-defense. So he would just be like a big Thanksgiving yeah. meal to an animal out there. Um, You're Pippi, not just saying, I really like this animal. Instead of releasing it, I'm yes, going to keep it for myself. Exactly. Right? Pippi, she was raised by people. They found out it was illegal, and she was brought in okay. at a year and a half old. So we've only had her for about six months or so. Uh, we also have a badger named Polly that came to us from Oklahoma. She was with Billy at one point. Billy was able to be released. She was a badger we raised. Uh, Pippi. Yeah, she's she's not. She's okay. not even a winter girl. Hmm. And we also have a few potential ambassadors as far as birds go, but we're working on that education permit with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. 
And we'll be really excited to reveal that when that happens. Tell me why that education side is so important to you. Uh, because it's it's separate from actually rehabbing the animals. Correct. You know, but you're, you're talking to school kids. Uh, I think a lot of people will understand the education when it comes to animal control because they're going to be dealing directly with them. But, you know, why are you teaching field trip groups and, and stuff about this? Because they're they're wild neighbors. And there's an old school mentality of, oh, it's wild just leave it alone or just shoot it or any of those, you know, those type of mentalities. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to change somebody who has that mentality that's, you know, up in age. I, I can't. I've tried. Like it's, granddad. It's a losing battle. Yeah. Yes. But I can teach the kiddos about conservation and why this animal is here and the design of this animal and what it does in the environment and also safety. You know, you're not going to run up. Don't run up and go pick up a you know, a baby skunk, no matter how cute it is. And so if you can teach them young, then they grow up understanding that from a very early age. And and to be honest, too, if they're in a setting with their granddad who does have the old school mindset, little Susie can change granddad's heart mm-hmm. way more likely than I can, you know. And I think you told me once about maybe as a, a young girl and, and their family found a like a, a hurt opossum and the girl was able to say, no, you know, you need to do this because the babies who are, you know, on this mother, you can't just like yes. extract them from the mom. It's that too was dangerous, a, right? Such a cool story. I'm glad you reminded me of that. So they were driving home and they saw it on the road. And the little I had we had been at the school and done an education program about opossums and how when they nurse, it's not like a puppy or a kitten, the they actually put their mouth around the teat and then their mouth seals around it. And the milk hmm. is just delivered to them in the pouch of the opossum. So this young girl said, Mama, Mom, we got to check the pouch of the opossum that got hit. Because we get people in the community call us all during baby season. We need a pouch check at 34th and Bell. And we're like, on it, you know, because some people are a little weirded out to check. We get it. We'll go check it. And um, so she tells her mom this. And they turn around and they come back. And the mom watches for traffic while the little girl goes over there. And she had saw the video that I had posted that... Um, was about how to separate the teat from the mouth Mm -hmm. without ripping the mouth of the opossum off because you could actually rip that off. And she did it very gently and brought in seven opossums that made a full recovery. They were totally savable, even though mom wasn't. And here she is like 11 years old is what I think she was. And her mom, you know, was like, all I did was watch traffic and made sure she did it safely. Hmm. So it was, it was amazing. Tell me, uh, to, to kind of close this section, I know you've talked about the, the generosity of the people here and their willingness to get involved, but what have you come to learn about this area, um, maybe the landscape and the animals in it? Because it is very different from what you were familiar with in Central Texas. Is there a way that, uh, that this place is, is different in maybe a refreshing way to you or something that, that you think about and that, that is, you think is cool? The resilience is beautiful Mm -hmm. in the people and in the animals. And I know now with certain weather and patterns, you know, when we have the high winds within about two days after those winds stop, we start getting in injured birds. Okay. So I'll know those kind of things are going to happen. If we get a hailstorm in the middle of spring, certain times of the year, we're probably going to get a bunch of baby uh, squirrels or doves. One year we got that call and we ended up picking up 305 injured doves in the matter of four hours during a hailstorm because we just got multiple calls and they were just dropping out of the trees. And I mean, people were just upset and their kids were upset seeing this happen. So 
I think for this area, I've kind of picked up on some of the weather patterns and how it affects our intakes, so to speak. But everything else, I mean, well, and then if we get a lot of water and we're not used to it, we'll get a lot of skunks that are being flooded out of their dens. We'll see a lot of that. So I think in regards to the area, I, we have kind of watched the trends with the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the resilience, I've learned to really love and appreciate this area, not just because of the people, but just the diverse amount of animals that are living here and that fly through here. I don't think people realize that the Texas Panhandle is a super highway for bird migration. We've gotten two pelicans in, wow. two white pelicans in. And we're nowhere near the ocean. Mm-hmm. But just because due to fog or a blizzard or something during migration, you know, we end up with a pelican. So it, it's it's just you never every day is different. You never know what you're going to get every day. You uh, you said you initially came here kicking and screaming. Um, I guess you're. I wouldn't live anywhere else. Yeah, you're, you're not kicking to to get out of here. Nope, nope. I will die with the center. This week's episode is supported by Wick Realty. I recorded every interview over the past year in my home studio. My family and I love our house, we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick Realty helped us to sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, or even if you're a first-time homeowner, Talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, 300th episode of Hey Amarillo is coming up. And I'm going to do a live show that's going to happen in May. And so I'm hosting the Hey Amarillo live show on Friday, May 5th, presented by Amarillo National Bank and Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics. The live show starts at 7 p.m. at Arts in the Sunset, That's Friday, Cinco de Mayo, and it represents the return of the first Friday art walk at the newly renovated Arts in the Sunset. I'm really glad to uh, have this opportunity to help introduce locals to this amazing remodeled space with my live show event. Tickets for the show are $24.99, and that includes bar service for my friends at Sips and Giggles, who will be serving beer, wine, and a specialty hay margarita that's included with your ticket. So that's going to be fun. We'll be recording episode 300 in front of a live audience. Uh, I'm hopeful that the audience will include former guests on the show, longtime listeners like you, and it will include a special mystery interview guest. This whole thing's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about it. There's a limited number of tickets, so go ahead and reserve your tickets at heyamarillo.live. That's heyamarillo.live. The 300th episode Hey Amarillo Live show is presented by Amarillo National Bank. Texas Tech Physicians Pediatrics. Again, go to heyamarillo.live for tickets. Okay, I'm back with Stephanie Brady. Stephanie, this is a part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and I chose this because of you. Its collection includes a shovel-tusked mastodon, which was a prehistoric mammal uh, that's a short-legged cousin of the elephant, and it was discovered here in the Panhandle in Lipscomb County. Very cool. At some point, there were elephant-like creatures around here. Uh, you probably are glad about that because you don't have room for those. <laughs> <laughs> I would make room. <laughs> <laughs> you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo mm-hmm. 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Well, 10 years from now, I, I feel like we're going to ha- grow even bigger than we are right now. 
My hope for Amarillo is that we keep the same mindset we have for caring for our neighbors and the people in our community. I mean, I think of just one of the biggest things when I moved here is driving down the road and there's, you know, a fire truck coming, all lanes of traffic slow down and all of them move out of the way. Yeah. In all the places I have lived in my life, I have never seen that before. Really? It is so beautiful. Hmm. Yes. If you go to big cities like New York and even Dallas, most of the time, you know, they're struggling to get through. That doesn't happen here. Okay. People respect the fact that somebody needs help and moves out of the way so they can get to them. That's good to know. That's a that's a cool thing to hear. Yes. I've just grown up here, and so that's a that's just a common mindset. You yeah. know, I've never thought otherwise. But okay, other than wind, which you mentioned, what does this area have too much of? I was going to say coffee shops, <laughs> but I love coffee. I love bo- that's the only vice I have, like a bougie coffee every day. But we have so many on every corner now. From when I lived here, eight when I moved here eight yeah. years ago. So, like probably when you moved here, we had maybe just gotten a Starbucks. Palace was just kind of starting. Yes. Roasters had been here for a long time, but like that was it. I was hardcore Starbucks until my neighbor said, you got to try roasters. And then I was like hardcore roasters Mm -hmm. and I'm still pretty hardcore roasters, but I also like Palace and I also like Dutch Brothers. And and now there's like Dutch Bros everywhere. There's scooters. The Yellow City's good too. Yellow City. uh, Cliffside's got locations everywhere. So I guess we haven't reached peak coffee yet, but (laughs) maybe we're close. I mean, if they keep building them, I guess there's the the demand. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Water. Mm -hmm. You know, rain for sure. Um, uh, Lakes, things like that. Yeah, this is not the place to go if you really like lakes. It's not like the Metroplex area or Southeast Texas where there's just lakes everywhere. Yeah, it gets just so unbelievably dry. You know, where I came from, it was so humid. You could walk out and you would be just soaking wet from Mm -hmm. humidity. And here you've got to like put lotion on three times a day. Okay, what's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? The community. You mean as far as what people should know? Yeah. I mean, what's the thing that is maybe our best thing that doesn't get talked about? The community, the people, Mm -hmm. the people we get to see every day that bring in an orphan or injured animal or call us because there's something that needs to be rescued. And it does not matter your age, your race, your sex, your degree or anything. It does not matter. Just the hearts of the people in this community. Okay. Other than your own, what's one local nonprofit you appreciate? I would definitely say the Discovery Center, and I want to say that not because of, you know, the whole land tie and everything, but when I first moved here, I've got four kiddos. I've got mm-hmm. two adopted kiddos, two bio kiddos, and we you need a place to take, you know, the kids to go do things because the weather's not always forgiving outside to go outside and right. ride a bike, you know. They might end up in Kansas. So going to the Discovery Center where they have all the neat things for kids to do and the science and um, they just make learning really fun. I really enjoy that nonprofit, and now that they have – Wildcat Bluff as well, they're mm-hmm. going to be taking kids outside. And then that speaks to my childhood and being outside and romping around and finding creepy crawlers and, you know, just learning about what's in this area. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? I have to say right now, my favorite local restaurant is the Pancake Station. Okay. Because I could eat breakfast all the time. Yeah. Pancake Station is, uh, I don't know that it's been mentioned too often on this podcast, but it is like one of those old school, reliable breakfast mm-hmm. places that is always busy. Never disappoints. Never. Yeah. yeah the, the crowd there always surprises me and it shouldn't at this point. I'm yeah. just like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll find a way in. Yeah. <laughs> all, the tables are always full. But they're fast there. Yeah, so they're fast. You don't have to bad. wait too long. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite coffee shop now that we've talked about it? 
for the last 30 days, I would say Dutch Brothers because I was addicted to their peppermint cold brew, which they don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually Roasters okay. or Palace. And when was the last time you visited Paladura Canyon? Last spring. And that's too long. Because usually I'll go a good dozen times a year. When you go to a place like that, you know, are you able to appreciate the geology and the sites out there? Or are you always just looking for animals? No, I appreciate the size and how beautiful it is. So I like to mountain bike there and hike. Okay. And when you go into Paladura and you're coming down that hill and you see it open up like that, you're like, am I still in Amarillo? Because mm-hmm. it is so opposite of what we see being up here on the Cap yeah. Rock versus down there. So no, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And I I love to hear the history of how it was formed and you know, we did the riding tour where you can go down and see the town that's down there mm-hmm. and how they used to live. I, I find it fascinating. Was it on your radar when you came up here? Like, did no. you know about it? Or no. was it just like a, a surprise? It was a beautiful surprise. Hmm. Yes. The only thing that was on my radar moving up here was that it was flat and it smelled like cow poop. Okay. Well. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Nobody's going to argue with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. So. Okay. Well, Stephanie, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, it's, I'm going to say, you know, just get out there, get out in nature and see what's around you, plants, animals, all of it on the beautiful days and the non-windy days and just enjoy it and appreciate coexisting with these amazing animals that are around you and get to know them and and learn what they do. And that's what I would encourage people to do. You know, put down the electronics, get outside and see what's out there. Okay. Stephanie Brady, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Stephanie for the interview. You can learn more about Wild West at wildwestwildlife.com and you want to give them a, a follow on Instagram or Facebook. They've got amazing photos that show the process with some of their animals. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Wick Realty and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Don't forget about Aaron Mankey at WT on April 13th and the Hey Amarillo 300th episode live show on May 5th. Tickets are available right now at heyamarillo.live. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Whitten. This has been episode 294. We are super close to 300. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.